the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Jeff Gonzalez. Jeff was a decorated and respected U.S. Navy SEAL for 12 years. He graduated from Bud's Class 155 and was immediately transferred to SEAL Team 4. He served at ST4 as an operator and trainer, where he routinely participated in numerous combat operations that led to the successful and timely accomplishment of strategic operational objectives. While at SD4, he was responsible for training fellow teammates in various combat-related skills such as weapons, tactics, and demolitions. Selected for the team's training cell, he was instrumental in developing several blocks of instruction that increased the team's overall combat effectiveness. Ranked as one of the senior petty officers of his command, he strived to not only improve upon himself, but his community at large. For his efforts, he was recognized on several occasions and was presented with awards in appreciation of his service. In this episode, I talk to Jeff about current events and safety, deciding to be armed, and pro tips for concealed carry. My favorite part of this interview was Jeff's discussion on situational awareness and was one of the best explanations I've heard thus far in respect to building this important safety skill. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Jeff, here's my first question. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Personal responsibility is like the first thing that comes to mind, being able to manage your affairs all on your own. Um, at least in the initial intentions, you know, there's, there's time and place for you to seek guidance and seek help. But I think self-reliance means that you're capable of doing that on your own. So let's move into some of the points we said we would discuss. One of the things that you raised was about current events and safety. I'm not sure if you were alluding to the situation in the US currently, but maybe possibly we can look at it a more in a general sense. If we think about a person finding themselves anywhere in the world, and the society that they're in becomes unstable because I think a lot of people are not entirely sure how they should manage themselves in those kinds of environments. I mean, that's a great point too, because, you know, when this, this pandemic kicked off, we had thousands of people that were stranded overseas because of the, because of all of the security and safety protocols that immediately went up. And so we had a difficult time trying to get everybody back home or get everybody into a safe zone. So I think it's not one of those things. I mean, you know, if I would have been traveling at that time period, would I have put on my agenda, you know, what am I going to do in a pandemic? I probably wouldn't have done that. I'd probably keep it more low key about like, what's, what's the most likely scenario, which is, you know, obviously violent criminal behavior from, wherever I'm going, you know, crime exists across the globe. So it doesn't matter where I go, I can expect to, you know, to be subjected to that. So I think the one of the things that has always been, I, I guess, a 
something that I've done myself because again, when I was on active duty, we traveled all over the world into very inhospitable locations. And there was a standard kind of like protocol that we would follow about, okay, we're getting ready to go into this high threat area. Let's make sure that we got all of our stuff together. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about is not just what you're doing right then and there, but what have you done in preparation for all of that? So for instance, one of the big things that we do is we make sure that we have all of our personal affairs in order. So that means when I leave, you know, that's my last will and testament is all taken care of. Uh, I have to make sure that all of my, you know, if somebody needs to come in here to grab a document that I need to come back into the States, they have access to my home to be able to go and do that. It's those little things that kind of get a little forgotten when you're traveling on a regular basis, or maybe you're not traveling on a regular basis. And that's the reason why you don't realize that I should probably take these types of precautions. And I think probably one of the most important things that you do is to make sure that people know where you're going and when to expect you back. And that's like, hey, if I'm not back on the 10th of July, you might want to start thinking about what to do from there. And so it's those types of preparational thoughts that I think really go a long way. I mean, it's no different than when you go out on a hike in the backcountry. You know, you're not going to go out there without taking some precautions about like, hey, I need to make sure if I fall and break my leg and I don't have cell phone reception where I'm at, how are people going to come and find me? So that's probably one of the simplest things that I could tell people is do a little bit more prep work before you actually find yourself in those types of situations. I've been talking to a few people and that definitely is something that comes up and I would say is largely neglected, even to the point of just not even thinking about it. And I think part of the thing is, is that people travel around the world, especially if they're going on holiday, for example, they don't think about that potentially there could be a bad thing that happens. And most of the times they they hit the ground, but they don't really know what that environment is. Uh, A good example of that would be, I work with a lot of cabin crew members and it's important for them to understand that the environment that they come from, let's say, for example, Singapore is very, very different to the streets of Johannesburg. And that you need to change your attitude and your mindset when you're moving around in those environments. And I think it is a worthwhile pursuit to have a grip on what is actually the most common threats that may be in that part of the particular part of the world, right? And not knowing that puts you at risk. And a lot of people don't think that far ahead. So it's a great point that you bring up. And one of the things that I probably should have mentioned in that preparation is learn about the location that you're going to, right? Uh, For us, we had access to a fairly sophisticated, you know, intelligence apparatus that could give us a lot of details, but the average person doesn't have that. So where do they go to try to learn that information? One of the places that I still check, and if I'm going to, if I know family members are going someplace, the first thing I do is I go to the state department's website And I look up what country they're going to, and I learn about what's happening right then and there. And then I have an honest conversation with them and saying, hey, are you aware of this? Do you know about that? And even if you're not an American citizen, that doesn't mean that you can't gain value from what the State Department has already been doing. So you can simply travel to, or I'm sorry, navigate to the State Department's website and, and pull up countries throughout the world and get at least our perspective from the State Department's, U.S. State Department's perspective about what's happening there. And you can use that to help balance with other sources of information that you might get. Like maybe you don't like what you heard from one location and then you go to another location and you find out, oh, they're saying the same thing. Well, that's what we would call a clue. 
And another way to define it is called critical thinking, which is what we seem to, we seem to have a little, not too much of that at the present moment, it seems globally, right? And so that whole idea of looking at multiple points of view and then drawing a conclusion is critical thinking and is important because I see this happen all the time. People travel and they don't take, like I said, they don't take into consideration that there might be potential problems where they're going or they don't do their homework. They're going to an airport. It's the first time they've ever been there. They don't look at the layout. They don't know where to get the taxi. And all these little things put you in a vulnerable position. And just the main point is that I'm always trying to bring this across. I'm not asking people to be paranoid, but there's a point of just being prepared. And I think preparation, when you prepare that way, enhances your confidence. It's a good feeling to know that you are prepared at least to meet what might arise and, you know, have some kind of idea of what you're actually going to do. You know, I, I'll tell you the, the difference between paranoid and preparation, you know, it's a thin line in some respects and, and, and it depends on who you are and your background. But one of the things that it's hard to argue with is the level of efficiency that you get from being more prepared. So when we would travel, it wasn't about preparation or paranoia. Honestly, it was about how smoothly and efficiently can we move through what you reference as a vulnerable situation, right? The more efficient we are, the less time that we're going to spend in those vulnerable types of locations, which means that, you know, we can navigate through them with, I wouldn't say minimal safety considerations, but we have already kind of addressed them. So when I talk about efficiency, what does that really mean? Well, like you were describing, where are you going? What to expect? How to deal with this? Um, you know, many times we would send an advanced team to go to places to try to get the lay of the land and then pass that information back to us and then have expediters waiting for us. So we would just boom, 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 boom. Now, not everybody gets that opportunity, but there are still plenty of things that you can do, plenty of resources that are available that can help enhance your uh, knowledge of where you're going. Uh, I think one of the best things to do, honestly, is... Google Maps is a wonderful thing. And just, I, I geek out on Google Maps. I can sit there, I'll, I'll pull up Google Maps of locations that I've traveled throughout the country, uh, throughout the world, and just kind of get a, you know, just, just what, you know, what the heck, why not? You know, I'm curious, what does it look like now? Has it changed? Does it still kind of resonate with me? Like, oh, I kind of remember that, or I kind of don't remember this. But Google Maps is amazing. And there's really no reason why you can't pull that up and use that. I mean, it's in your hand. It's in the palm of your hand, the ability to pull that stuff up. And there's a lot of things that kind of go hand in hand with uh, knowing your routes, knowing where you're going, knowing what to expect when you're going. I mean, now I, I'm, I, I don't know the extent of, you know, the, the ride share options throughout the world, but I do know that they, they exist. I just don't know how you know, how entrenched they are in other locations. But, you know, that's one of the things that is valuable when you travel is that most of these established ride shares have pretty, I would say, improved safety and security measures in place for the travelers simply because, you know, they have been kind of held accountable to that sort of thing. And so now if you travel and you're going places like that, that's another way to kind of help increase your efficiency. At least, you know, that's a, that's a known, that's a known that there are certain safety measures in place with those types of options. That's a, that's a good point. I think a lot of people don't realize, especially in the third world countries, many of the taxis that you would normally find outside of airports are a risk. And not only that are often run by the mafia. <laughs> well, that's on the good, that's on the good sides. You know, the, the <laughs> yeah. my experience with public transportation in throughout the world has left me 
with a very jaded view of what to expect there, but you're absolutely right. You immediately expose yourself to not just the criminal element, but for us, it was also, you know, the terrorist element as well as espionage and being able to protect ourselves from being placed in those types of situations was really important. Now, back then we didn't have ride shares. You had to manage and navigate through the public transportation systems, which were clearly vulnerabilities for us. And we knew it. I mean, that's, that's one of those things we talk about is we know that we're getting into those situations, which is why knowing where you're going and what to expect on that route is so very important. Cause a lot of times we didn't speak the language. I might have a few terms and a few phrases, but I don't, know how to explain what I want per se. I can just show him a, an address on a map and ask him to take me there. And he's going to go potentially a circuitous route that might not be in my best interest. So that's a big thing. Um, you know, I think when you are, when you're responsible for your own safety and you have to realize that as a, as, as a citizen of whatever country, wherever you travel, you are subjected to the rules, regulations, and laws of that host country. So that's an other thing that is super important about developing self-reliance is being able to understand what's the difference between where you're going. I mean, there could be something as far out as ideological differences that can make it very difficult for you to safely navigate. I mean, there's plenty of places in the world that, you know, as an American, I really can't go no matter what, no matter what type of safety protocols I take, it's just too risky. And I have to question whether or not it's worth it. Other people probably don't make those types of determinations because they don't see the potential risk. Whereas my experience traveling throughout the world has shown me that the risk is there and it's whether or not it, it doesn't matter whether or not I want to recognize it or not. It's there. The question is, what am I going to do to manage it? One of the things that I brought up in another podcast, I was talking about how there's a tendency by some people, especially when they come from the safer parts of the world where they have this attitude of that. They don't need to change their behavior if they're going somewhere else, they've got this kind of attitude of at the end of the day, I should be able to move through the world freely without anybody harassing me. But that's not reality. That's not how the world works. And you can think that way, but then you're just going to get yourself into trouble. I cannot tell you how many times that has been an issue. And I hate to say it, but it, it is, I mean, there's no other way to say it clean, like, but that's an entitlement attitude. And, and, and it's such a horrible perspective to take when you are placing yourself in potentially harmful situations. Um, and I, I criticize people that will say, well, I've traveled the world and I haven't had any problems. I'm like, well, that doesn't mean that problems don't exist, right? And the problem is that by you taking that stance, what you're doing is you're devaluing the very real risks that are there for other people to take on, like you were talking about earlier, the critical thinking component. So when I've seen that, like one of the things that is a, you know, it's, it's maybe difficult for some people to accept or acknowledge is to try to, to try to blend in and to some extent just almost disappear to not be uh, so grandiose in your, you know, your travels. Um, we reference that in our field, our, our tradecraft reference that as being the gray man, somebody that doesn't draw attention, doesn't attract unwanted attention, can blend into the crowd, can look like they belong and potentially kind of just 
mm, slip in underneath the radar. Um, I cannot tell you how valuable that type of a mindset is, at least in the interim, in the very beginning, when you're still trying to get your feet on the ground and figure out what really is a risk and what is not, because you could have this great information provided to you, but you need to still correlate that with what you're seeing on the ground because it could change. I mean, we're living in a very time sensitive type of nature. Whatever you got might be old and there's something new happening that you didn't, you know, you weren't aware of. So value, you know, kind of like evaluating once you get on the ground, what does your gut tell you compared to what you thought or what you were expecting? And if the two are in sync, okay, great. But if they're not in sync, you know, that's where you start to have to think about it. But may, making yourself just such a, um, a low key presence is, is never a bad thing. It really isn't no matter where you're traveling. And it's unfortunate too, because, you know, a lot of people want to enjoy themselves. They want to hip hop, you know, and have all sorts of fun. And I, I'm down, I'm down with that. I mean, there's nothing stopping me from having a good time, but at the same time, I meter that with the realities of where I'm at. You know, I mean, uh, there's been some pretty, some pretty tough places that I've been to that I still had a great time, but I had to, you know, I had to remind myself that really bad things happened on the other side of that stadium. I need to be cautious about where I'm at. I think that's a really good point. And the whole idea of blending in and not, you know, making a show of yourself because what people don't realize is that criminals, the bad guy is always profiling Mm. and they're looking for targets. And if you're going to stand out, then you are attracting attention. And if you're attracting attention, it's more likely that it's going to be towards you when that criminal act is put into effect. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's mind boggling to understand how good the criminal element is at singling out a target because the criminal element is, this is a global situation. This is not restricted to a, a region or a country. This is across the world. And the criminal element does two things Their actions are driven by avoiding these two things, injury and incarceration. If they feel as though the risk is too high that they could potentially be injured or run the risk of being in jail, then they're going to choose a different target. So over the span of millennia, these guys have gotten, and girls, have gotten super good at selection, target selection. And one of the things that we teach our guys is how to avoid those common traits that the criminal enterprise looks for as part of target selection, you know, and one of those things that we talked about is, is, is drawing attention to yourself. If, if you go out of your way to make yourself a known entity, then it's right off the bat. It's like, Hmm, all right, well, I wonder what's going on over there. So my recommendation to people is you know, it's not about having a good time. It's implied that if you're traveling on holiday or vacation, that that's the reason why you're doing that. And there potentially could be some risks that you have to be aware of no matter where you go. Um, but at the same time, trying to blend in is, it's not just about, it's not just about safeguarding your safety. It's also about understanding the culture, the region, where you're going. Um, you know, one of the things that we would have our guys do um, is wherever we went, it became kind of like a standard almost that we would go to the local markets and buy local clothing so that we could blend in more efficiently. And, and it wasn't because I didn't like the clothing that I brought from the, from the States. It was just a matter of tradecraft to help improve 
our, or help to reduce our vulnerabilities. Because if we look like everybody else, and I, I was very fortunate, and you can't tell now with all my gray hair, but in, at, in a, younger, a younger self, you know, I could blend in in like two thirds of the world very easily. I had that going for me. So all I had to do was learn a few phrases, a few, you know, catchphrases, if you will, dress reasonably close to the way they dress there and just maintain a low profile. And I literally could just go about my business without hardly anybody paying any attention to me. So you said there were a number of things that would be important. One of those is keeping a low profile. Do you have any other ones that you could maybe share with us that would be really important? I think traveling in pairs, having a, a buddy system. I mean, that's super important. And, you know, part of that buddy system is, you know, an, an awareness that you guys are working in sync, not just traveling together, but you're looking out for one another, you know, like uh, traveling in pairs, like the way that we would travel in pairs is not necessarily shoulder to shoulder. I would potentially uh, move ahead of my partner and my partner would trail behind me. And part of the reason behind that was my partner was watching my back and we would flip flop, you know, we'd spend a little bit of time where I would be in the lead and he would trail and then I would trail and he would lead. And the reason that we were doing that is just to see if there's anybody paying attention to us. If somebody's paying attention, I'm looking at the back of who's paying attention to you. If you're my partner and I'm staking, I'm taking a you know, a couple paces back, maybe more than that. I'm looking to see who's paying attention to you. And I'm looking at the back of their head, whereas they're looking at the back of, your head. Um, and you know, that's just tradecraft of sorts. I'm not saying that you need to develop this you know, like Jason Bourne-esque kind of condition, but you know, traveling in pairs is just one of the simplest things that you can do. Um, I think the other thing that is very valuable is making people aware of your presence there, wherever you're going. So for instance, it's standard protocol that uh, if I'm traveling to some other country that I check in with our embassy or our consulate and I let them know where I'm, you know, how long I'm going to be in country, what hotel I'm staying in, what my travel itinerary is going to be, my plans, you know, what, what uh, sites I'm going to go and see. Maybe I'm going way out in the bush there and I'm going to be gone for a couple of days. So I'm going to at least let them know because that's the first line of defense. The first line of defense is the U.S. mission wherever you're at. So whatever other country that you are originating from your mission, your, your country's diplomatic mission is the first line of defense towards your, at least your, you know, your safety and potentially your retrieval, your, your repatriotism. So, you know, that's probably the, the third thing that I would make mention of is that make sure that where you're going, you at least know, I mean, that was like, first I knew where the embassy was before I even got in the country. Then I would drive to the embassy and then walk to the embassy so that I knew how to get there from either mode of transportation and, you know, just making them aware. And a lot of times too, the embassy has the most current information about what's happening. And I can tell you many times that we would get there and they would be the first ones to tell us, okay, listen, there's um, sort of like a little bit of a issue going on over in this neighborhood. You want to avoid that neighborhood. That's not information that we got when we were stateside. It wasn't until we got there that we actually got that type of information, which is incredibly valuable. So we avoid that neighborhood. We go other places in the on our visit to just, you know, abstain from potentially putting ourselves in a high risk situation. Yeah. I think that, that advice is really important. What I would like to get your take on Jeff is just your conceptual or idea around situational awareness. How would you describe that? And what would be really important? Because this is the thing I notice all the time. And I think you notice it. We all do if we in similar kinds of um, industries is how unaware everybody is stuck in their phones, not noticing anything around them, 
And then when things go south, they wonder why that happens. I think situational awareness is underrated and people don't apply it. Well, that is, uh, first of all, I love that subject and I could talk for hours on that subject. You know, the first thing that I might suggest is people research Cooper's color codes of awareness. Uh, you know, rather than waste time talking about that now, I will just reference people that are watching the podcast or listening to the podcast to actually research that. Uh, when the Colonel came up with that information, uh, it's hard to beat it as far as like a mental kind of perspective. As far as the practical application of that, man, I will tell you right now, the most important thing that you can do is to avoid being distracted. So we talk about you need to pay attention. All right, pay attention. Well, what am I paying attention to? I don't know. I, I, there's not a specific thing that I'm paying attention to. But what I can tell you is don't be distracted. All right, so don't be distracted. Examples would be your phone. There, we talk about there's a time and a place for you to check your phone. When you're traveling and in a foreign land that you're not familiar with, that's not the time. When you get to the hotel and you're in your room safe and sound, when you get to a restaurant and you are safe and sound, when you get to some place that is a safe area that you've designated as a safe area, that is a time for you to go ahead and break out your phone and start, you know, you know, getting back on social media. But all that other time, it is not. Because any distraction, anything, is, is potentially a, a trigger for a criminal act. Um, one of my greatest... Uh, like takeaways from a Vietnam era frogman uh, as far as navigating booby traps was whenever you see something that forces you to look up, immediately look down because that was a trick that the VC would do, which was they would put something shiny up here and you're looking at that. And as you get closer, you don't see the tripwire that you stumble across. Right? So I use that same kind of metaphor here. If something is distracting you, it's, it's probably intentionally to distract you because criminal elements need surprise to, to, to avoid that injury that we were talking about. If they can get the jump on you, it's very hard for you to do anything at that point. And we talked about, so when you talk about situational awareness, part of that is, you know, we need to be able to detect what's happening around us. Then we need to be able to diffuse or de-escalate right? And that's really hard in a third world country where you don't speak the language. And third, we need to be able to disengage and have a place to go. And then fourth is last measure to defend. So detect, diffuse, disengage, and then defend, right? So that's part of that situational awareness that you're moving about. Okay, I'm, I'm looking, I'm paying attention, I'm seeing, you know, what's happening around me. And then once you are in that detection mode, that situational awareness mode, the things that I tell people to pay attention to are what doesn't belong. That is the easiest way to, to, to help people to understand that, that philosophy, which is what doesn't belong. And I tell the story about um, a situation that happened to me um, in overseas and I was in you know a country that was stable but you know we weren't necessarily on talking terms so um, when I left the embassy and as I was walking to my hotel it was incredibly hot where I was at and it was in the middle of the day and the the hustle and bustle of the city was like it was like downtown Manhattan I mean it was just like boom 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 everybody was going and I remember that I just had you know I was thirsty and hot and sweaty. And I saw this little 
stand on the side of the sidewalk and I walked over to the stand and I literally got out of the flow of traffic as it was another reason for me to stop was I wanted to just get out of that hustle and bustle. And I, I ordered a drink and a, I think a little snack of some sort. And I'm sitting there waiting for the snack and I'm drinking. And as I'm doing that, I remember I glanced upstream, like upstream from where I came from. And in the middle of that stream was this gentleman just standing there, very stoic-like. And he's looking right at me. And I remember that's weird. That doesn't look like that belongs. I remember I was like, what's that guy doing? Right? Because he's just literally standing there and people are like flowing around him like it's a river and a rock in the middle of the river. And when we made eye contact for an extended period of time, he kind of like gigs up, you know, shoot, he got me. And he immediately takes a turn and disappears into an alleyway. I never saw him again. And, um, you know, when I got back to the embassy, I checked in with the RSO, let him know of that instance. And he's like, oh, yeah, you had a tail. That was a tail. They were tailing you from the, the, from the embassy to see where you're living. And then they'll tell you from there to see where you're going and all this other business. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? How could I possibly have had somebody tailing me, right? Because I had gotten somewhat complacent in a certain, you know, like, you know, I'm hot and tired. I just want to get to the hotel. And I wasn't really paying attention. And not that even if I was paying attention, I would have spotted this guy. I mean, this guy's tradecraft was pretty damn good. He made one mistake, which was he stood out. So if you don't belong, that's going to draw scrutiny. Scrutiny is going to lead to discovery, right? Or I should say scrutiny leads to attention and then attention will lead to discovery. The, the discovery of their intentions, their motives, their objectives, right? So um, situational awareness kind of moves into that arena by paying attention to what doesn't belong. And then I think probably one of the most underrated skills that you can develop is a reliance on your gut instinct. That is one of those things. It can't necessarily be taught. You just have to, I hate to use the cliche. It's so cliche, but you just have to go with your gut. And that's helped me more than one time, man. I'm telling you, I've, I've kind of, I've skinned, I've, I've gotten away from a, a, a plenty of bad things by the skin of my chinny chin chin because there was just something that didn't feel right. And, you know, I, I, I left, there was a one, one time in particular, which I flashed back immediately when we started talking about this was a, um, a bar and we were in this bar and it was in this fairly nice downtown region of a place that I was in. And, um, like some of the, some of the patrons there were just super like, like giving us the evil eye. And, you know, you're used to that as an American, you travel around, people are, you know, they do that and you just kind of like, you just kind of let it roll off your shoulders, you know, don't take it personally. I don't, I don't know them. They don't know me. So, um, but the atmosphere there was significantly becoming more toxic and my friends and I were there and I, you know, we'd been having, it was a social setting. We were having drinks after dinner. And I remember thinking, you know what? I just, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break from this. I just, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, this was me disengaging basically by going someplace else. So I walk out of the bar, I go down like maybe a block or two to another bar. And, um, I don't know, I'm there for maybe five minutes when there was an explosion at the other bar, the one that I had just left. Um, and several people were injured. Uh, I don't remember if people were killed. I know that of my party, one person was severely injured. Another person was pretty lucky. He got, he got out of there with just some small fragmentation injuries, but, 
um, you know, it, it immediately was a gut feeling based on my perception of the people that I was around. And, you know, I just decided that I, I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. And as a result, I was completely removed from the, that bombing that occurred. And actually, you know, um, when I think about it more and more, that entire trip was filled with those types of gut feelings, like places that I would go and just like, man, I think I'm just going to go wait out here. You know, I don't trust, I don't like it or blah, 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 blah. So I've, I've come, you know, maybe my gut is a little, a little, uh, not up to it's, it's once very sharp mind, uh, because when you travel over and over and you're placed in those types of high threat environments on a regular basis, you know, you just kind of, it just becomes part and parcel. You just become so reliant on that. But if you're not in that type of environment on a regular basis, you start to question your, you start to second guess yourself. You start to second guess that gut feeling. And now you start to repress it and say, ah, that's not really anything. Don't worry about that. They're just, you know, they're just like that. Worst thing that you can do. I think for an average person, just applying everything that you said previously, you know, about, you know, being low profile and all those things, just applying that when you actually hit the ground, especially in a new place, will enable you to have more connection to your intuition because you're actually practicing, right? And so that practice leads to confidence. If you don't do it, if you never do that and you just don't take the time to just secure your safety where you are, you will never trust your intuition. And there's more likelihood that you are going to second guess it when it does arise. And you're going to have that internal dialogue. Oh, you know, you're being, you're being ridiculous. One, one, one of the things I mention all the time is that, you know, if you get addicted to crime and investigation network, like I do, and you notice a lot of people talking about the crimes that were perpetrated against them, almost always they will hint to the fact that they knew that there was something wrong, but then they overrid it and they say, oh, you're just being silly. And they just carried on. And then the shit hit the fan. So, you know, there, there's something to be said about actually trusting that. And, and if you're wrong, so what, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. But if you're right, that can mean all the difference. I'll tell you, probably one of the um, watershed moments for me was a validation, uh, a validation that I got from a, a New York Times bestselling book. And I reckon if you're, if you're invested in traveling or personal safety, no matter what, I highly recommend this book. In fact, all my children have to read this book. Um, and it's called the gift of fear by Gavin De Becker. And I absolutely love that book because it talks about that intuition right then and there. Now I read this book years after I'd left uh, active duty and I'm like sitting here just going, oh, yes, I know this. I know exactly what he's talking about. Cause there are so many parallels to what I had experienced in my life that just resonated with me. And, and it was, it was, it was, um, it was gratifying to know that I was normal <laughs> because after a while you start thinking, am I, you know, am I normal? Is this how everybody thinks? You know, so, uh, you know, maybe I'm not normal, but at least my thought process where I was traveling was normal for my, my situation. So I had that. Um, I, I learned uh, one of the, probably the biggest takeaways that I took from his book is it's okay. It's okay to say no or potentially offend somebody because you say no, right? And that's a really hard thing, particularly for, for most people that are good nature. We don't want people to be upset at us, you know? And the criminal enterprise knows this. Oh, they are so good at manipulating that. They can, they, they're, they're chameleons when it comes to this type of manipulation. So the, the most powerful word that you can use, and what's interesting is that this word is also universal, no matter what language you're in, is no. 
And being able to say that in a calm manner that, it, that, that relays your intention that no, is incredibly powerful. And, and that right there, I can't remember, it, it was um, the, in the book, if I remember correctly, it was a young lady who, who entered an elevator with another gentleman and her, it was, you know, her gut instinct was going cray cray. And um, it was, if I remember correctly, she had, she was subjected to, you know, criminal assault, but she felt bad hurting this gentleman's feelings. And as a result, he was able to perpetrate a criminal act against her. And, and, and that was the reason why it happened was because she did not want to say no. She was a concerned about his feelings. And I think that's a wonderful trait. I mean, that right there is a very compassionate person. And that's the type of people you want to surround yourself with. But from a criminal element point of view, that's the type of person that it also makes for a good target. I think that's very valuable, Jeff, really. So let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about deciding to be armed. And as you know, this is a contentious topic for some. So let's hear what you have to say about it. Well, um, I can tell you what we're seeing here in, in my country, which is I can't even keep track with the numbers now. I think we're up to like 8.5 million firearms sold in, since March. Um, I mean, that, and, and what I try to emphasize to people is don't think about it from this point of view. That's 8.5 million people that have made a choice, okay? That choice right or wrong, is to be armed. And in our country, as, as a few other countries, you know, the, the right to personal protection through the use of, of, of a firearm is an inalienable right. And that means that you are constitutionally protected to use that. So seeing that many people who, before this craziness started, didn't feel the need to be armed, but all of a sudden, in this compressed time period, 8.5 million people in about three months. So if you're just, if you're just a student of numbers, right? If you just can take a second and, and, and stop and say, why, why, why? That's the most important question. Why have 8.5 million people decided in three months to be armed? In the last three months, 8.5 million people. Well, what's happened? Well, we can see that there is incredible unease about what's happening Un insecurity un un you know the, the unknowable we don't know what's going to happen we have no clue and so with that looming unknowable the, what we're learning is that many people are becoming self-reliant and placing their personal safety in their own hands and one of the best tools that you can do to help with that is a firearm. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's like, there's going to obviously be people that are going to be upset with that viewpoint, but I'm like, Hey, okay, let's not talk about how many guns were sold the year before. Right. Cause you know, we're seeing an increase, we're seeing an increase, but it's over a 12 month period. So it's like not quite as impressive, right. Over 12 months. But over the last three to five years, we've seen a steady increase in gun purchases. And then in this time period, we've seen a hellacious spike. So whether you like it or not, people are changing their minds about being armed. When we have a population of 330 million in this country and 8.5 million have chosen to be armed all of a sudden, that's, that's something that you can't just, you can't just dismiss. 
and call it, you know, paranoia or call it uh, uh, anything. It, it's it's clearly a trend. It's a trend in a direction that a lot of people never thought would happen. I mean, let's face it. You know, up until you know this past this past presidency, I mean, there was the the Second Amendment was up against the ropes in some respects. Not anymore. I mean, I feel like that's that's a long that that fight is long finished. I mean, that's a significant number. But you know, coming from where I came from, which is South Africa, there would never be a chance in hell that I would not be carrying and be armed. I, so here's the thing: that's your experience, right? Your experience, like, and first of all, it's a beautiful country, um, and it is unfortunately ripe with crime, and and it you can't like. I remember traveling there. You can't have any other attitude other than I've got to have my A game. I have got to be my, I've got to have my A game and I've got to have my tools and I've got to be well versed in the use of these tools. Like that's not even a conversation point anymore because if you don't have those skills, if you don't have the tools and the skills and the mindset to go with it all, uh, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's an unforgiving, unforgiving environment. And your experience living there, having come from there, is, is a rarity in a sense as far as being able to share that with the general public. Because, you know, where I live, that's not, I mean, you know, that's not something that you can expect. Uh, I think people have a hard time recognizing that level of crime, that level of violence that exists and that it's always existed and it's not going away anytime soon. There's no, no political, you know, correction for that. It's just, it's, it's going to be that way for a very long time. And so what I try to emphasize to people is like being, being armed is no different than being prepared. So earlier in our podcast, we talked about preparation, right? Well, part of being prepared is being armed. And I know that that can ruffle some people's feathers. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. That's totally fine. I'm not pushing my viewpoint on anybody. I'm speaking about the facts that we're seeing. I'm telling people my experience as, an, as a nationally recognized firearms trainer and seeing thousands of people coming through. Because the other part to that, um, you know, firearms purchase and other pieces of that puzzle or layer, if you will, is the number of people that have applied for a license to carry. So here, there's only a handful of states that you don't, re- you don't need a a license or a requirement to actually carry concealed in um, several states you have to apply for a license to carry and it's 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 not a very complicated process and, and each state is different um, here in the state of Texas you have to go through six hours of classroom instruction on the law and, and the use of deadly force and then you have to demonstrate you're proficient and safe with a firearm easy um, but what we what we've seen is that throughout the country over the years the increased applications of license to carries has has continued so um this year 2020 we actually got four states that now have one million license to carries or carriers in their state four states we now have one state that actually has two million license to carriers in their state so what does that tell us again it's a trend it's an upward trend where we're seeing now what i can tell you right now is we were doing maybe in an entire year, we might do 300 students for license to carry. Between March and June, we did 650. Between March and June, 650. 
right? So again, that's an upward trend that people may not like, but you can't argue with it. I mean, that's, and it's not going away. That's not slowing down. Just like the gun purchases are not slowing down, people choosing to carry a firearm. So it's, it's, it's a two-part scenario. Number one is the tool, right? Purchasing a tool, so becoming a firearm owner. And then number two is carrying that tool with you. So being armed is about actually carrying concealed. And so we're seeing that increase and I don't see it slowing down. In fact, I would be really surprised if by the end of 2020, Texas isn't the second state with 2 million licensed to carry just through the volume that we've seen in the first half of this year. I would be surprised. Um, so, you know, what are my, what are my, like, I try to encourage people to have an open mind about being armed. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're going to use deadly force. It just means that you have a tool. And it goes back to a famous kind of quote, right? You can either persuade me to your point of view, right? Through dialogue, through discussion, through debate, or you can force me to your point of view, right? So I have a firearm. I'm armed because I won't allow you to force me to your will. You have to persuade me. And if I don't like what I'm hearing, I'm going to choose not to go along with it. And then your only other choice at that point is to force me. And as a free man, I will defend that, you know, that along with my family's options to choose to the very end, you know, until the day I die. So the key thing about persuasion and force is that the only thing that stops somebody from forcing their will upon you is number one, the mindset. Number two is the tool. And number three is the skill. And if you have those, you're no longer, you know, you're, you're no longer subjected to that. Well, I mean, obviously you still could be forced, but you at least have an option. And that option is to defend yourself. Well, that really speaks to the philosophy of self-reliance totally. So let's pivot just to the last point. For those people that are carrying concealed, what tips could you give them? Because I know that you wanted to talk about pro tips for concealed carry. Oh, well, um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting a, a guest here. I apologize. <laughs> she's doing good. She was doing really good, but she needs, you know, she's a, she needs attention. Can you go sit down? Thank you, baby. Um, uh, no, down. All right. Good girl. She may pop her head yeah, in no here a couple times. Um, so some pro tips. The first thing that I tell people is, if you're new to carrying concealed, um, educate yourself on, on the aspect of it. You know, there's a lot of little things and simple things that you can do to help, number one, do it safely, and then number two, do it better. And that all comes, you know, it's like any other skill. It's any, it doesn't matter what skill it is. It takes practice, it takes a little bit of knowledge. So if you can marry those two things up, that's great, right? The second thing is, I'll tell you right now that I carried in some not in a non-permissive environment is, is basically a war zone or a place that we really shouldn't be. And I've carried in some non-permissive environments concealed and um, you know, I did it very well and it was like a second, second nature to me. Now, once I left the Navy and I started working in the protective services um, I remember the first interview that I went to, I was responsible for a, an elderly couple that were very rich and um, I was part of the detail and I was like, hey, um, it sounds like these people are, are you know, they're potentially a high, high value target. 
should I be armed? And you know, the, my boss was like, well, of course you should be armed. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, you know? And so I was just trying to get my head wrapped around being concealed in my own country. Cause up in, this was still when I was in the Navy. Um, and I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm like, oh my God, I've got to do this now in the States. It's so weird. It's just like hard for me to wrap my head around. And I remember when I was carrying concealed here in the States for the very first time, everywhere I went, I was like, they know. <laughs> He knows, he knows, she knows, you know, I just, I was so paranoid that everybody knew. So one of the things that I tell people is, first of all, if you're doing, if you're doing just the very bare minimums, as far as concealing, people are not going to know, right? So you, you can relax. Earlier in this podcast, and you, you've used the term several times, confidence. And so I encourage people to gain a little confidence. And one of the ways to gain a little confidence is by carrying concealed in your own home. And it's not, a, it's not like you're, the only reason why is to just to, to, to rack up the hours of carrying in the privacy of your home where you feel safe. You don't have to worry about public interaction. You can do it here in your home and you can rack up the hours. And, and I tell people that, you know, you have to kind of rack up these hours to learn about, you know, how it rides, the comfort, the discomfort, what you might change, how it looks with this shirt, how it looks with that shirt. And you do that in the privacy of your own home because it helps you to build that confidence that you were referencing. And then when you do eventually move into the public sphere, you have a little bit of experience that was free, didn't cost you anything. You know, it's just something that you can do very quickly. And then one of the things that I encourage people to do is to, to safeguard the fact that you are armed. Like there should be a very small circle of family mainly and possibly some very close friends that know that you carry. And the reason behind that is that we try, we're not just trying to conceal the firearm, we're trying to conceal our intentions and our capabilities. So if I tell somebody and that somebody just starts to like, because you know he's got guilty knowledge and he doesn't realize that he should safeguard that information as, as, as well as I do, and now other people start to learn about this and other people start to learn about this and before you know it, everybody knows that you're carrying concealed. And you've kind of defeated the purpose of carrying concealed at that moment. So safeguard the fact that you carry concealed. And then the last thing that I would encourage is, is to practice. And what I mean by that is, is, is practice the deadly force application, which means drawing the firearm from concealed and actually having to shoot a deadly force threat. And part of that means that you have to know the law. You really have to become familiar with the law. And I will tell people that, um, you know, sometimes the law can be confusing and which is why I value the concealed carry or the LTC programs is because they do a really good job of helping the layman understand their rights as well as the law. And so if you have an understanding of, of the law, you are far less likely to subject yourself to criminal prosecution because you didn't know the law. You did something by mistake, or you did something that you saw on TV, or you did something that you read about that really wasn't applicable for you. Um, and I, I think that that leads to more confidence because one of the complaints that I've heard, so we send out surveys on a regular basis, like every 30 to 45 days. And one of the survey questions that we had um, was targeted to the concealed carry market was a, um, a question. Uh, it, it, was, it was a preference from a previous question, which was if you don't carry on a regular basis, uh, which is another point I'll talk about. If you don't carry on a regular basis, why? What, what was your reason? And I gave like four possible reasons. And the overwhelming response was 
because they don't, they either don't know the law or they're confused by the law. And so as a result, they just were like, I'm out, just going to avoid it altogether. Right. And I don't blame them. I mean, that's, that's actually a pretty smart choice. If you're not entirely sure, well, don't run the risk, you know, learn first of all. Um, so, you know, those are the types of things that I feel like are super, super important. And it doesn't really take a lot. It, it really it, is. I'm not asking a lot of the new concealed carrier. Cause that's the other thing is like, what I don't want to do is I don't want to have like a litany of things. You got to have all five of these things down, you know, because that's just going to discourage people from actually doing it. Well, crap, that's too much. I don't want to do all of that stuff. Just talking about the very, very basics and trying to do it in a manner that lowers the barriers to entry so that more people will feel comfortable actually. Because I feel like if I, I look at myself, not necessarily as an instructor, but more as a mentor. And if I can help mentor people towards their own self-discovery and their own self-development, uh, that's the win I'm looking for. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. So Jeff, final question. Leave us with some words of inspiration for people listening to this, what would you like to leave them with? For me, I, I live my life in a manner that um, is probably a little different, but I feel like it's still, it's, it's valuable at the very least interesting for other people. And, you know, we have been fighting a war against terrorism now for a very long time and I've lost a lot of teammates. And I try to live my life with the idea that, you know, they couldn't continue to live their life with their family, with their loved ones. And so I want to live my life to the fullest because they were denied that option, but they chose that option for themselves. And so I feel like I'm somewhat obligated to try to live a more fulfilling life. And I, um, you know, there's a great poem and, you know, one of the phrases in that poem is beautify your life. So I try every day to do that. Um, that also ties into one of our ethos as a, as a, as a, as a Navy SEAL, which is earn it every day. So every day I try to do something that earns my place amongst my peers as well as beautifies my life. And I mean, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but trying to, trying to focus on those things has, has really done well for me. And so I would say that that's probably some, some guidance that other people could probably benefit from. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.